Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Spencer Claven, host of the Young Heretics podcast and associate editor at the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the St. Vincent College-sponsored CLT is coming up on January 9th. Students who apply to St. Vincent College will be able to take the CLT for free. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, it's amazing the kind of guests we are getting on the program. Uh, today, we have Spencer Claven. Spencer is the host of the Young Heretics podcast, as well as the associate editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the American Mind. He holds a BA in Classics from Yale and a Doctor in Philosophy in Greek and Roman Literature from the University of Oxford. Spencer, welcome. Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And after that introduction, I'll just try not to disappoint too much. I'll minimize the disappointment. Well, I, I got to tell you right out of the gate, I, I told a couple people uh, th that I was interviewing you tomorrow for uh, our podcast, uh, a couple comments. One was, that guy's on fire. Uh, another was, uh, he's the next Jordan Peterson. Listening to the responses to Young Heretics or reading the reviews, I, I always uh, am really moved by it, especially the diversity of people who are responding to what is essentially just a Western literature podcast. I mean, I, there's not a big, you know, frame or hook to it. And when I launched the show, I sort of thought, you know, this might be too basic. It might just be not in the sense of the information is basic, just in the sense it might be too straightforward. I love this material. It enriches the soul. Here it is. And, and one of the things that makes me really actually optimistic about the world and America is that it, the response was a little bit like, you know, you hold out a morsel of food in your hand and say, Hey, is anybody hungry? And they, they devour your entire arm. You know, it's just, there's so much, uh, yeah. there's so much energy for this stuff out there, which is great. Well, I'm interested in learning more about your background, and in particular, was there maybe a moment in time um, that spurred your passion for the great books? Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, it's I remember very vividly, you know, these these moments that loom so large in your personal history and the way you tell your own story. I remember so vividly lying on the floor of my grandparents' apartment, which was on the 33rd floor of a Manhattan high rise. Hmm. And I used to visit them as a kid. I think I was 12 years old. I was in sixth grade, so I guess 12. And I was reading uh, Lattimore's translation of the Odyssey. It was the first classic I had ever read. And hmm. I remember just getting so wrapped up in it, you know, just, just becoming invested in it the way I had been invested in like R.L. Stein and K. Applegate, the Animorphs, these, these kind of... Uh, science fiction, YA, young adult science fiction books, and suddenly realizing that this, that's what that basically was, that I, I, there was no difference between those two things except for a kind of gap of information and history, mm -hmm. that there was all of this, you know, 
kind of back baggage that I had to learn that I was embarking on. But there's something about the richness of the classics. There's a quality that I always try sort of haltingly to mm. describe to people. Because, of course, when you embark on a project of investigating the Western canon, one of the first things that people ask you is, well, how? Are you going to determine which those, you know, what, what, what are the classics and how can you tell? And of course, you know, there are, there are long and studied answers to that question within the Western tradition, the trivium and the quadrivium and the sort of um, history of classical education. But on a personal level, for me, there has always been a quality of just um, depth of life to all of these works, yeah, which yeah. gets lost when you, when you turn them into kind of academic Tomes, even something like Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics, which we did on the show, and, and I think the, the the vivacity of that is is what drew me in at first. So from the outset, uh, you noted that the Young Heretics podcast would be a place for listeners to engage with the best of the Western tradition. Uh, identity politics are to be checked at the door. Uh, we recently had Alessandra Bocci from the Wall Street Journal on the program to discuss her article concerning the efforts uh, of the group student named decolonization at Brown University to tear down statues of Marcus Aurelius and Caesar Augustus on campus? Are we truly seeing its consequences uh, spilling over into civil society? Yeah, you know, it's easy to sort of, if you're coming at the conservative critique of cancel culture from the outside, I think it's easy to be turned off by a little bit of hand-waving, what, what might seem like hand-waving and hysteria. I've gotten that comment before. Um, and on one level, I can see why one would feel that way, in, in part because there are still many wonderful academics and teachers working within the university system. It's not as if there's no, there are no good professors. I, I have had many myself and many who did not ideologically endorse the idea that you should tear down a statue of anybody that doesn't believe exactly what you believe. All of that having been duly conceded, however, the reality is that ideas have consequences and first premises especially have consequences. Um, and what we're seeing is not a, um, is not an individual or a personal problem, but what you might call a systemic problem. And that is something which has to do specifically with the institutions, how they shape people's souls. And unfortunately, there is either a kind of silence about or an acquiescence to or worse, an endorsement of this notion that, you know, everything before written before 1960 is afflicted with a kind of contemptible prejudice, mm -hmm. which means we have to not only condemn what we find morally abhorrent, but actually remove from the discourse and from our own history from our own story that we tell about ourselves. We have to take all of this away. Um, the closest historical analog to this from, from classical antiquity is, is what's been called the damnatio memoriae. It's a, it's a, that's a Latin phrase, the damnation of memory. Um, and it was something that in the period, in the imperial period in Rome, people would tear down statues of old emperors when a new regime came into place. And of course, what all that creates is a, as a series of perpetual condemnations that the latest moment in time is that the sort of index for uh, forgetting about anything that went before. Now, first of all, 
if you actually read the classics, as we've been doing on the show, you'll discover that they're tremendously humane, sophisticated, self-aware in ways that people accuse them of not being. So, for example, the notion that, you know, the Greeks were just chauvinists and hated all the barbarians, and this is a root of Western racism, is preposterous if you ever read, for example, Herodotus, who is famous for being philobarbaros, for loving uh, and being interested in the cultures of the world and reflecting on their multiplicity. Um, but but even at a you know at a deeper level, it, it, on some profound in some profound way, what this represents, in my view, is a, a kind of incapacity to deal with the flawed nature of humanity. This the you know, one of the yeah. deepest Christian teachings is that we're, we're tremendously broken. When you, when you shape people's souls at that deep and fundamental level, from the you know kindergarten level on up to the universities. Uh, yeah, it has consequences. And uh, it's not hysteria or hand-waving to say that that's really going to turn out poorly in the end. I'm wondering, I, I got to tell you, I, I was so encouraged a few days ago talking to Alessandra Bocci from the Wall Street Journal. Um, of course, she's Italian. Uh, she was comparing the education she got growing up pretty mainstream in Italy compared to the United States. And she was saying that the classics are universally esteemed. It was almost unthinkable that students would want to tear down a statue of Marcus Aurelius. But it seems like there's actually a greater esteem for classical antiquity and these kind of foundational texts that shaped uh, Western civilization and even gave birth to America. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, one of the things I found about Oxford, actually, even as compared to Yale, which shortly after I left, so I graduated in 20. 14. And in 2015 was when they had the big kerfuffle, I believe, about uh, Halloween costumes um, with the Christakises. And, and that sticks out in my mind, at least, perhaps because of my sort of personal proximity to it. That sticks out in my mind as a watershed moment for this yeah. series of developments that really at that point, I, I felt as if the American Academy was going down a very dark road. Um, one of the things that I reflected upon at Oxford was that the, the, the sheer oldness of the institution, the sheer age of it. You know, it's older than the modern English language. Um, and, and, and that means, a that you know, that has consequences. It means, for one thing, that the institution itself has seen intellectual fads come and go. And in general, of course, we refer to Western Europe as, as the old world. Um, and the, the liberalism that is, you know, now a central part, I think, of its of its public discourse and its political policy. Um, you know, Douglas Murray writes very eloquently about the development of these of these things over the last century. But that is, I think, you know, emerging on top of a very, very deep, rich history, which we share in America. I mean, we, we, we have to remember that although we're a younger nation, our founders were not inherently antithetical to the, to the Western European traditions. In fact, quite to the contrary, their revolution was distinguished from the French one uh, by its endorsement of English values and of the, the founders' desires for the rights of Englishmen. And so America, in some ways uniquely, um, stands in the world as potentially the living inheritor of all this depth of, of history. And, and when you kind of scratch at the surface of this, you know, last 50, 60, 70 years of, I think, really madness, you find that people's intuitions are uh, still very sound. And, and this is one of the things that makes me quite hopeful, actually, not just doing the, 
podcast, but going out into the world, you know, talking to my Uber driver or the guy at my gym, like the, you, you find that people, um, just in the, in the basic impulses of their moral intuitions and their sensibilities have been trained by, even if they don't know it, by, by this huge multi-century millennia, really multi-millennia long uh, history. So it's, it's, it, it's more visible in Europe, uh, but it's not unique to Europe, I don't think. So I want to talk to you about a recent article uh, that you wrote, How to See Clearly in the Kingdom of the Blind. Uh, what a name. You note that it is a bit of ancient wisdom that every society will produce more of what it honors publicly. You further discuss this in terms of prudence and frugality, the virtues which Livy wrote were those that inspired Roman citizens to greatness. But you also discuss the opposite, that societies which award their highest honors to conformity and dishonesty will produce generations of cowards and liars. We at CLT here, we're striving to reconnect knowledge and virtue, recognizing that the wisdom of the classics, which inspired the founding generation, are continuing uh, to be pushed to the wayside. So, you know, that essay, which you mentioned, I cite Livy in it, but I'm drawing also from Polybius, who might, I don't know if I do cite him in that essay, actually, but this is the Greek historian of the Roman rise to power, whose analysis of the Roman constitution is quite famous. Book six of his history, he sort of goes into detail about this tripartite government, which ours, our government shares, right? You have the executive, which is something approximating the role of kingship, but in a kind of anti-monarchical society. So how do you vest mm. power in a leader without, you know, slipping back into kingship. Then you have this aristocracy, which is variously understood, and this is important, right? The aristocratic element in the middle is the both the senatorial class, so in, in our case, the legislature, but also the whole, the, the what, what's been famously referred to now as the elites, right? The people who come under the most fire from, you know, Trumpist conservatives and populists. Um, and, and there's a role for, unfortunately, you know, for some, there's a role for those people in, in a Republican society. As, as Machiavelli notes, you can't do away with them. They actually, you do need a, people who excel in their field. Um, and then, of course, the, the much maligned people who do the voting and the, um, and the, and, and are in some sense the, the sort of substance, the, the, the meat and potatoes of, of your regime. Now, the reason I sort of go into this lengthy excursus is because you know, the, the people's job, in some sense, as Polybius says, is to award honors. It's to honor things that are good and to shame things that are bad. That's where they get their power in a society where there's an elite and, a, and an executive. It's also how they give meaning and form and shape to life. Um, so really, you know, one of the things that I always come up against when I'm going on my various rants about what's, you know, good and bad in American society is you say, well, how can, what can we do about this? Because I live in California where the leadership is, is kind of avowedly hostile to many of the ideas I'm currently uh, describing. And, and, you know, people feel powerless a lot of the time. They feel like yeah. they can't do anything and, you know, they, they can't, their vote doesn't really matter. I think, you know, one thing to note and, and to stress about classical education, right, is like this, your power is not just in your vote. It's not just that you have this one role to play every four years or every two years where you go to the poll and you cast in, in this drop into the ocean. No, like you are part of the essential fabric 
of this civilization. And, and in, in your role as just a member of the populace, you must learn to love what is good. That's, I mean, and, and to say that you love what is good, you must call a spade a spade. It's part of what you do. And it's part of how you inspire others to, you know, to aspire to the, to the things that are virtuous and noble. And the classics will, will teach you how to do that. But, but there is an unwillingness to do that uh, in, in 99% of academia. Um, was there a moment where you just kind of said, I'm going to do this thing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I work at a wonderful place, the Claremont Institute, where if anything, my employers will get on my case if I, if I don't say enough, right? Um, and that's not true for everybody. Um, and, and, and because many people feel that they will suffer persecution or just get nasty looks or what have you. Um, but, you know, I, to give myself a little credit, I, I carved a path in this direction. And I did so when my professional academic career reached a point where I no longer felt I could speak clearly about the things that mattered to me. So I, I wouldn't say that there was a, a moment when that happened. I will say that I went into academia with a certain sense that there there might be an end point here, that, that I might eventually get off the kind of typical tenure track train if things got to this to this point. And, mm -hmm. and, and so one thing that I would counsel people who feel the way that I've just indicated, who feel that they can't speak up because their employers will get on their case or just because they'll get, you know, hate online or whatever, um, is as they say, squad up, right? Find a, a group of people. And, and, and if you, you know, need to meet with those people at first in private, so be it, you know, form a reading group. And, and, and you know, there, there are a million tiny ways uh, that you can tell who those people are, a dropped hint, a, a, a look, you know, a sort of attitude toward life. They don't have to be people who vote like you. I, I'm not talking here about like political associations. I'm talking about people who are willing to say things like, you know, men are men and, and women are women and, and that those two things are different and, and it's good that they're different and they, and, and, you know, these, these kind of basic facts of life that have become so taboo. If you can find people who will discuss those with you, even in private, um, and then aspire toward just more outspokenness, because the minute you say something, you find, of course, that everybody's thinking what you're thinking. I mean, this is the other thing. 99% of people are, once you just put a word to what you're thinking, 99% of people are like, yeah, that, that's that's pretty reasonable. And actually, I've been, I've been shocked, especially among my liberal friends, at, at how little hatred I get. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty outspoken online, and I get, I have the typical trolls or whatever. Um, but if you step out in courage, for which, unfortunately, there is no substitute, uh, you, you'll often find that there are more with you than against you, as the prophet says. One of the, the lectures on YouTube, I, I really enjoyed your speaking about C.S. Lewis. And I, I've always kind of thought, you know, his his gift to the world was that he came out of the ivory tower and to speak to normal people in normal language. You have that gift. You know, you, you don't necessarily sound like a typical, you know, graduate from Oxford and, and all that. You're speaking in the way that, that normal people talk and the things that people are thinking about. I, I'm wondering... Uh, CLT, we have a reading culture here. Uh, of course, we start every day uh, reading. We do a, a book every quarter that we focus on. I'm wondering what book, is there a single text perhaps that you would say has been most influential? You mentioned the Odyssey when you were 12 years old. Is there another book that maybe you keep coming back to every year? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, Lewis is one. His great 
gift was that he spoke clearly. And one of the things you discover when you try to speak clearly, it's, it's actually more difficult than using $5 words. If, if you can, you know, if, if you can condense complex, even, you know, elevated ideas into a dynamic and kind of lively presentation, um, you should, because actually it's a, it's a bigger intellectual lift. And, and Lewis was reviled for this at, at Oxford, at, at Maudlin, the college where I studied. Um, he, he, he couldn't get advancement professionally. He was, he was totally just, you know, uh, and now of course, you know, they give out a, uh, at, 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 at the door, they give you a brochure with his face on it. Right. So that, <laughs> so that just tells you, right. Yeah. You know, how long you only have to wait a couple generations, um, before these things turn around. And that's, that in itself is important to remember. But to, to come back to your question, you know, I, I read, uh, Lewis over and over again, somebody who's so compelling, I think, and so, um, rich that you return to him and you find that something, a very simply turned phrase or a very basic sentence actually has this huge depth of learning behind it. Um, you know, I think all the time about his book, Miracles, which is basically a crib of Aristotle's metaphysics and, uh, in some senses of, of Thomas Aquinas as well. He almost, he practically never says so. You know, he almost never, uh, never mentions that that's the case. But if you go and read Aristotle, you'll find that he's expressing in very clear terms what Aristotle, you know, said in, in kind of weird, uh, crabbed sentences that are sometimes hard to decipher. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend Lewis, but you know, there, there are, I think, a few texts. Um, the Bible is, is one and not just for religious reasons, although it also for religious reasons, um, this kind of hugeness of the vision of the world that's to be found in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament together is kind of endless. And uh, the symposium, Plato's symposium, about which I also speak on the podcast at one point, uh, which is another short one, like you can read it kind of in a boozy afternoon. And it's, uh, it's magnificent in that in that capacity, just, you know, Plato too was, was known for his prose style, known, known for constantly going over sentences and doing the sort of um, deceptively simple things that he says that you can just kind of unpack forever. Well, Spencer, uh, here at CLT, we are super uh, grateful to you. Um, you are kind of exploding right now. Really honored to have you take time out of your day to come and join us on the program. Again, we're here with Spencer Clavin uh, over the Young Heretics podcast. Make sure to tune in. Uh, Spencer, have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much, Jeremy, and, and thanks for the work that you do as well. It's really important. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.